Good evening. Acts chapter 24, please. Acts chapter 24. My plan is to set the scene, read what Paul said on this occasion as recorded by Luke, deal with a verse that I have been asked to deal with, and then there will be one huge takeaway when we conclude. This is all from Acts chapter 24. Here's the scene. It may say above the passage in your Bible, if your Bible has affixed to it paragraph headings, Paul before Felix at Caesarea. Like Jesus and his enemies, Paul had enemies, and their methods were very much the same as with Jesus. There was a cycle that occurred over and over when you read through the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. False charges, charges that changed from court to court, no evidence, false witnesses, certainly no just cause for arrest or conviction or penalty. Now, I could take a lot of time to track the enemy's case against Paul through the book of Acts, but I think with this audience, you know what the problem was. His belief in Christ and his bold preaching of the gospel without compromise agitated, hostile, unbelieving Jews. They would not accept Christ and the new covenant, and as Paul spread the message about Christ and the new covenant, their hostility escalated. So Paul is now before Felix at Caesarea after multiple hearings and unceasing opposition. And at verse 10 in Acts chapter 24, Paul is given opportunity to reply. And in this reply, he explains that his purpose was never to stir things up his purpose was never to violate law or create anything other than faith in Christ and inviting people to respond to the gospel. He says there was no evidence upon which to base any charge or any penalty. We're going to listen now to Luke's account of what Paul said on this occasion and this is going to be found in Acts 24, beginning with verse 10 and reading down through verse 21. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, 
believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. You know, the core of this speech, the essence of Paul's defense could really be called Paul's confession of faith. Abbreviated though it is, it contains some of the essential elements of his faith and his practice toward God. His confession of faith contained these strong elements of his conscience, his conviction, his conduct. He said, I am worshiping God according to the way. The way. Now, this is reminiscent of what Jesus said in John 14 that was read in the assembly this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was and there is today one way out of sin to God. One way out of sin to God and to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ. Now that wording in John 14, 6 and here in Acts 24 conveys the concept of singularity. Singularity. That's what I meant when I said one way out of sin to God and to heaven. It conveys the idea of singularity as opposed to plurality. Out in our world today, in the religious and secular world, what prevails is the idea of many ways, many pathways, many denominations, one as good as the other, just do whatever you want, whatever you decide, whatever way that you craft for yourself or that men craft for you. The Bible knows nothing of that kind of variety and plurality and diversity and individuality of way. Perhaps if Paul had proclaimed that back then, if Paul had said, you just do anything you want to do before God, if Paul had proclaimed a diverse, pluralistic message, perhaps he would not have been under attack. But Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, there is one gospel, and anything different is false. And anyone who delivers any other message, Paul said in Galatians 1, is accursed. So, 
though it may have aggravated those who were listening to him in Caesarea, and though it certainly aggravated both Pharisees and Sadducees, if not for different reasons, Paul is not an audience pleaser. Paul is a man of conscience and conviction. He maintains that what he taught and practiced since he became a Christian and an apostle was the way God gave for man to get out of sin and go to heaven. I'm worshiping, I'm following the way God has graciously given. Should we ever be called on to defend ourselves against those who oppose what we believe? If we are ever called upon to give answer for what we believe and teach and practice, I would hope that we would say something in line with what Paul has said here, if not using his very words. I'm practicing according to the way God is given. He said, what I do and what I preach is not in conflict with the law and the prophets. Now, here was one of the sticking points. Here was one of the blunt, sharp issues between Paul and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. They were not accepting any idea of a new covenant. When Paul spoke and wrote about the God-ordained change from the old to the new, the Jews, who were wedded to their traditions that they thought came from and that they said came from the Old Covenant, they just wouldn't have anything about any kind of change, any kind of new covenant. Yet, listen carefully, an objective and good-hearted reading of the Old Testament demonstrated all along, written in the Old Covenant, that there was a new covenant on the way and a Messiah who would bring it. Jeremiah, Isaiah spoke of this clearly. The Messiah and his kingdom were signaled by God through the prophets. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. So Paul says, I'm following the way in my worship and in my life, and it isn't in conflict with anything God has previously said. Because God has said in the old covenant there would be a new. I'm doing what the law and the prophets said one ought to do, respond to the Messiah. Therefore, my hope is in God. You know, Paul's hope was not in a defense team. His hope was not in some ill-conceived escape attempt by zealots. As he pursued this course of faith, this way, his hope was in God. And he's not vague. He's not vague about just some sort of generic hope or guesswork. Paul specifically describes his hope in these words. I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. I'm going to ask you to turn back to John 5. And I'll meet you there in just a moment. The Gospel of John chapter 5. Now this is the text I was asked to deal with in Acts 24:15, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just 
and the unjust, there were men standing there in the courtroom, standing there in Caesarea, who believed in God's power to raise the dead. But there were some others there, the Sadducees in particular, who were not on board with any mention of a resurrection of the dead. And that was a point of contention with them. But Paul, as I indicated earlier, did not craft his message based on points of contention or compromise with this group or that. His hope in God was in anticipation of a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He knew this was coming. And this was also reminiscent of what Jesus said about the matter. I'm talking now about John 5, 28 and 29. John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who were in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul is an apostle of the one who said those words. He's an apostle of Christ. He's going to affirm what Christ said, no matter the opposition. The gospel of Christ looks forward to a time when all will be raised, the just and the unjust. Now, this is not something that can be dropped into the opinion category. Paul preached the resurrection of the dead, and he eloquently wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15, connecting it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote of this at some length in First and Second Thessalonians that we're going through in the Bible class. Paul spoke of judgment for all. The just and the unjust would be raised. The unjust would be raised to condemnation. This is part of Paul's confession of faith and hope. About these facts, he showed no inclination toward any kind of compromise. In fact, as the next point shows, this was a matter of conscience. I take pains to have a clear conscience, Paul said here. There is that part of the mind God gave us that can be called the conscience. The conscience prompts us to behave according to what we believe. When we use this to program the conscience, when we believe what is right, when we program the conscience with the truth of God, we are led and prompted every day to choose and speak what is right and to reject any compromise otherwise because there would be the pain of conscience. Paul was not standing before Felix as a diplomat or a politician or a deal maker or someone who's there to craft some compromise. No, he said, this is what my life and this is what my work and this is what my message is about and with me it is a matter of conscience. Well, you know the outcome. Paul was sent on to Rome. He spent some time there under house arrest, imprisonment. 
and eventually history says he was executed by orders from the Roman Emperor Nero in the year 67. Now, this is history. Biblical history. Authentic history from the first century apostolic time. But it's divinely written history. So there must be some point. Some point for us. Some example here. There's some takeaway when we read this in Acts 24, written by Luke. Seems to me the takeaway can be expressed in a singular way. So I'm going to go this time with one takeaway. A singular takeaway. Never back away from faith and hope in God. Never. Under any circumstance. Sometimes we will reason from circumstances and come up with a wrong response. Sometimes we will reason from circumstances or we will play into hypotheticals and come up with a wrong conclusion. The, the hypothetical that commonly comes up is, what if someone held a gun to your head demanding that you renounce immediately your faith in Christ and speak against him? Now, that's the dramatic hypothetical. That's the dramatic one. Move down to the lesser ones. What if your job is threatened because of your conduct that is in alignment with the teaching of Christ? What if there is a friendship that is wearing very thin because of your conduct in keeping with faith in Christ? Do you renounce that faith? And then moving from there, what if someone is just uncomfortable with the way you worship and the way you conduct your life? See, this is the pathway of circumstances and hypotheticals and situation ethics and reasoning from consequences. And what it could lead us into is a very weak and sickly faith where we would stand before Felix in Caesarea and say, how can we work this out? How can we come up with a deal? What can I do to take the edge off of that message about the resurrection of the just and the unjust? What kind of compromise can we work out at a conference table? Let's go behind closed doors and let's work something out. That would be reasoning from circumstances and reasoning from consequences. And that pathway takes one to a weak and sickly faith. I believe history like this in Acts chapter 24 and in other places is designed and written to put on display examples of how faith acts under pressure. Never back away from faith and hope in God. I'll tell you, I think of this when I read the book of Revelation. Rather than getting caught up in all the minutiae of imagery, <clears throat> look at the big picture in the book of Revelation. Look at the main idea. Those who participated in victory over evil were those who didn't back down. 
Those who were faithful unto death, who suffered and became victims of systematic opposition, but would never renounce their faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, these examples are written for us. Daniel and his friends, Isaiah the prophet, and so many others. Jeremiah, who lived in a pit beneath the earth because of what he said. Men who said, here is where I stand. Women who said, I will not change. Men like Isaiah who said, here am I, send me. Never back away from faith and hope. Never go through that door of hypotheticals and reasoning from circumstances and looking at outcome. The outcome that we ought to be looking at is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Which side of that will I be on then? I think that's the message of this kind of history. Never back away from faith and hope in God. Here's where I want to take this before we go home. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. There's some good reading we're going to do here at the end of our time. Hebrews chapter 11. Immediately when I say that, you know it's about faith, and it's about faith in God, according to the scriptures that I've been preaching about in the series this year. And it's the subject of this chapter in Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is loaded with what we're talking about. Examples like the one we've studied tonight, where people did not back away from faith and hope in God. And the writer takes this directly to us. So what I'm going to do is read from 32 in chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 32. And I'm going to keep reading into chapter 12 where the writer takes it directly to us. Hebrews eleven thirty-two, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats and destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What will be written of us? Our faith. My faith and your faith. Well, it's being written now by the way we live. And it's being read by others, but ultimately it is being read by God. Never back away from faith and hope in God. Let's be standing as we sing.